At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Rashida Tlaib, one of the two Muslim women elected to the House this year. John Nichols spoke with her recently, and we'll listen to clips of their conversation. Also, you don't have to be a woman to stand up for reproductive rights. Katha Pollitt will talk about abortion and men. But first, Trump or Brexit, which is worse? For that, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's been named the new editor of The Nation, replacing Katrina Vanden Heuvel starting June 15th. He's been editor-at-large, based in London. We reach him today in New York City. Don Guttenplan, welcome back, and congratulations on the new job. Your listeners should know that I'm speaking to you from the editor's chair, the center of power at The Nation magazine. (laughs) (laughs) That That should give a whole different sense of the proceedings today. (laughs) Well, from the perspective of someone who's lived in the United States every day since Trump won the election, it's easy to say, of course Trump is worse than Brexit. Nothing could be worse than Trump. But you've lived in London pretty much the whole time since the Brexit vote, which was in June 2016, five or six months before our presidential election. So maybe you have a more thoughtful answer to the question. Maybe we should start with the two political systems. Americans will have a chance to get rid of Trump next year. Can the Brits get rid of Brexit? Uh, Not so easily. If Brexit happens, whether it happens by a no-deal Brexit, as the likely future Prime Minister Boris Johnson would like or whether it happens through some version of a negotiated Brexit, uh, once Britain's out of the European Union, there is no easy path back in, and certainly no path back in that is going to be able to be taken by 2020. Of course, that doesn't mean that Brexit is inevitable. I mean, you know, we already have Trump, and we don't already have Brexit. So there are things to be worried about on either side of those. And of course, if if it were up to me, I would choose neither. Well, let's talk about the elections of 2016 a little more. The Brexit campaign and the Brexit supporters had a lot in common with the Trump campaign and the Trump supporters. Remind us of why these seem so similar. Brexit happened first, and um, many people, including me, thought that Brexit was a very strong signal that if you believe in the zeitgeist, the zeitgeist was leaning in a populist direction and that it could be a right populist direction or a left populist direction, but it certainly meant to me that Trump's victory was feasible 
And part of that is because of some similarity of issues. For example, immigration was an issue in both con- in both countries, and there was a certain amount of racial resentment or xenophobic resentment, depending on which country you're talking about. But really, the, the sort of wellspring of Brexit sentiment in Britain was uh, the extent to which globalization had devastated and hollowed out the economy and left large parts of the country just abandoned, and people felt they'd been left to rot. And Brexit was their chance to say, no, we don't like this, we don't want this, and we don't want to go in any of the directions that the established political parties are promising to take us. So it was a kind of turn the table over and start again. And, you know, there are many factors that led people to vote for Trump, but certainly when I was covering the campaign in 2016 in places like Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, uh, Michigan, you met lots of voters who felt that the American political system had basically written them off, and this was their chance to say, we're still here and we don't like it. Well, Gary Young, the nation columnist who's also based in Britain, says there were some legitimate reasons for progressives to vote for Brexit. Certainly not the case for Trump. I I wonder if you agree with him about that. I do agree with him about that. I didn't vote for Brexit. I don't support Brexit. But The Nation published a piece by Lord Glassman, Morris Glassman, who's a labor peer, called No Deal is the Real Deal. And it is essentially the left Brexit case. It basically points out that a lot of the things that a labor government, a socialist government, would want to do in terms of both protecting and encouraging uh, manufacturing, manufacturing jobs, in terms of worker ownership, in terms of public ownership, taking things like the steel industry or uh, utilities back into public ownership are currently forbidden under your, your EU rules. My own view is that you know, socialism in one country is as unlikely in Britain as it was in the Soviet Union. But, but yeah, it's a case, and there are arguments for that case. Another factor, the Trump base seems completely immovable. His 37% supports him no matter how many destructive or crazy things he does. Is that also true of the Brexit base? Or is there, are there any signs of remorse or changing of minds over there? There are some signs of remorse or changing of minds. I mean, it probably depends on why you voted Brexit. So low-information voters who believed the slogan on the side of the campaign bus that if they voted Brexit and Britain left the European Union, there'd be hundreds of millions of pounds for the, more money for the National Health Service and have now seen that that's completely was a complete lie, you know, that, that Britain would be able to do all these wonderful things and also voters were promised that negotiating trade deals with other countries would be easy, that they'd be lining up to negotiate deals with the mighty British Empire. And and that's turned out to be a complete shock. So among voters who voted on those grounds, there's quite a lot of remorse. And almost all of the polls show that if there were a new referendum, Remain is now much more in front than it was when the old referendum was held. But, you know, these things could shift back and forth. uh, And the sort of the kind of industrial heartland voters who voted because they felt that the Westminster government ignored them and was pursuing policies that had decimated their livelihoods, those people are as much for Brexit as ever. And similarly, I suppose I should say that, you know, when I when I did reporting in Ohio a year after the election to find out what the voters who voted for Trump thought about how he'd been doing, I found his base was pretty solid. I found that you know, people felt they'd written off 
or discounted the character questions, and they felt that he did what he said he was going to do. He, even you know, even on things that the rest of us abhor, like the Muslim ban, you know, he said he'd do it. He did it. The trade war with China, the tariffs on Mexico, those are all things. Those are catnip to his base. So he he's been really assiduous in cultivating his base, and I think that's the reason we've seen very little erosion of his of his base support. Gary Young writes, I'm quoting here, both Trump and Brexit are products of a political and economic crisis. The left needs a coherent response to that crisis. Indeed, it was partly the lack of a meaningful response from the center left that made both possible. Close quote. Where do we stand now on a meaningful response from the left in both places? Well, in Britain, we still don't have a meaningful response from the left. I mean, I think that's one way in which Brexit is worse, is that from a policy point of view, Jeremy Corbyn has continued to straddle and has not said, you know, we, we are for Remain. But let's, let's go deeper into the British perspective for a minute, because the, the thing to remember about the entire Brexit, whatever you want to call it, catastrophe, fiasco, is that it's essentially been a game of chicken. That's the best metaphor for understanding it, and that's still true. And in the game of chicken between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn has now won because Theresa May is gone. Now, you know, as the great political philosopher Jimmy Carter said, life is unfair, and now there's a new game of chicken, and Jeremy Corbyn has to figure out how he's going to deal with Boris Johnson, who is much more enthusiastically heading for the cliff than Theresa May was. Theresa May was hoping that she could head towards the cliff and then just make a quick turn at the end and Jeremy Corbyn would go over in one way or another, and instead she went over. Now, Jeremy Corbyn has to keep whoever the next Tory prime minister, who is almost certainly going to be a more fervent Brexiteer than Theresa May, from driving over that cliff, and their foot is going to be on the floor. And if they do drive over the cliff, it may be that Corbyn ends up the next prime minister after that, but he'll be the next prime minister of a deeply economically crippled country. So, you know, it's not really in his interest to, to have that happen, but he hasn't yet figured out a case for preventing it. He's just hoping that the conservatives will continue to self-destruct, which so far, you know, it's disappointing, but as, a pure, as pure gamesmanship, it's, it hasn't been a bad strategy. Here, it's, it's different because you have ideas that are being put forth. You know, Elizabeth Warren is putting forth ideas at a blistering pace uh, as to a, to a left answer to neoliberalism, inequality, you know, the economic fix that we find ourselves in. And, of course, you know, Bernie Sanders had a lot of ideas that were already out there that addressed some of these questions. So we have what's, what we at the nation like to call the ideas primary. That's happening. We also have what we at the nation sometimes scorn to <laughs> think about, which is the personality primary, which is also happening. And, you know, the truth is elections matter. Both of these things matter in elections. And there's a very large democratic field. And it's not, I think, unreasonable to hope that at least there'll be one or two left uh, standard bearers who will have interesting ideas and publicly acceptable person personalities as we get into the you know the the sort of primary season where you go down from four or six to two to one. I think we're not there yet, and you know we reporters always like to jump ahead and and cut to the chase, but this is a process, and I think there's lots of reasons to be hopeful in the process. There are a lot of good ideas, and there are a lot of interesting candidates out there. 
uh, if we can get a candidate who has some coherent ideas that are progressive ideas, which were definitely not on offer the last time, then I think that there's a very good chance that we can confine Trump to his base. I don't think the Democrats are going to take any of Trump's base voters away from him. But I think if you can confine him to 37% or even 40%, and you can motivate 60% that are at least sympathetic to your message to actually turn out on Election Day, then you've got a decent chance. Well, now I'd like to talk for a few minutes about your new job, editor of America's Oldest Weekly, The Nation magazine. You may know more about the magazine's history than anybody. You wrote the book, The Nation, a biography, the definitive history of the magazine. We've already remarked on the fact that during the 2016, you were one of the magazine's lead correspondents on the road. In fact, you were on our podcast quite a bit reporting from places that a lot of us never get to. My favorite segments, I think, that you and I did were when you were in Montana and then when you were in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Those reports became the basis of of a book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. The big question for the next couple of years is what is the role of the nation in shaping America after Trump? Well, I think, you know, since we've been talking about Gary Young, I should say that Gary Young said that the next republic is optimistic but not delusional. And I think that's a very important distinction to maintain as we go forward, you know, hopeful but not delusional. So the nation's role is to be the place where it has been for a very long time, where liberals and the left debate one another civilly, and have their have their arguments and have it out. It's and to be the place where new ideas can percolate, find support, gather public notice, and to be a place that subjects those who would be progressive standard bearers or those who would claim the progressive banner to critical scrutiny. It's all of those things. I mean, we have a not to mention our constant efforts to shine a light on inequality, injustice the sort of racial oppression, all of those things are a crucial part of our mission going forward, not just to 2020, but beyond. Another big question, of course, inevitably, is the future of print journalism. Everywhere newspapers in particular are losing readers. I've I've heard that the internet is growing as the place people look to for news, and the nation.com website has millions of, of readers, the print mag is what, something like 150,000. You know, I'm an old white guy. I like the print magazine. I love the cheap newsprint it's printed on. Will the print magazine stay alive? What is the future of print in America? The nation's print version will certainly survive for one reason, because nobody has figured out a way to make the web version support itself. People pay to get the nation in their mailboxes every week. They pay for that experience. They pay for that connection and they value it. And one of my first tasks as editor is to make sure that that experience is satisfying for them and that it, we, and we improve it. So, you know, one of the things that, you, that I hope to do as editor of The Nation is to make the magazine more of a pleasure to read every week and to make it more of an experience that people look forward to and to make it something that surprises people, not, not in the sense that, oh, we might endorse Trump next week, not in the sense of being ideologically crazy, but in the sense of telling people things that they didn't know about or exposing an angle on things that people thought they'd thought about but hadn't considered this angle or... You know, just bringing new things to people's notice. I want, I want people to, to look forward to seeing the nation in their mailbox with eagerness and anticipation. 
So I think that's, you know, that's a very important part of my job. But I also think that you need to separate out news, which people are getting more and more from the web, even even people like you and me, John, and I'm yeah. one of those people who is addicted to opening a newspaper with my morning coffee mm-hmm. and sitting down with a print piece of newspaper in my hand while I have my coffee in the morning. My whole system doesn't really boot properly <laughs> if I don't do that. But on the other hand, if I want to know what happened you know, around the world in the last 20 minutes, I've got to go on Twitter, and that's just the reality. So the nation has to be in all of these arenas, but we have to figure out what it is that we do that we do uniquely. And we are not the uh, Huffington Post. We are not the New York Times. We are not the Associated Press. We can break news in the sense that we can, if you have the old definition of news, is that news is something that somebody doesn't want you to know, then the nation will always be a place that breaks news because we'll always be a place that people who have things to say that, are, that other organizations are trying to suppress will be willing to print. But we're not going to be anybody's breaking news source on a day-to-day. And in one way, we may be doing even less of that than we do now to free up resources for being more thoughtful, for being more analytical, for being, for being more of a kind of how to make sense of the news that you're getting on the web rather than primarily a source of that news. How to Make Sense of the News, D.D. Guttenplan, the new editor of The Nation. Don, thanks for talking with us today. I hope we can do it again soon. John, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Now it's time to talk about Rashida Tlaib. Of course, she's one of the two Muslim women elected to the House, and our John Nichols spoke with her for the Next Left podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. John, of course, is The Nation's national political correspondent and a semi-regular on our podcast. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, John. Well, for the first episode of the Next Left podcast, you spoke with the other Muslim woman elected to the House, Ilhan Omar. She's a Somali immigrant representing Minneapolis. Rashida Tlaib represents Detroit. She was born there. Her parents are Palestinian immigrants. Tell us a little about Tlaib's background and her roots in the multi-ethnic politics of Detroit. Well, that's a great place to begin because um, Rashida Tlaib's experience is, as you know, very different from that of Ilhan Omar. And it is a reminder that our Muslim American communities uh, come from many different backgrounds, many different places, many different experiences. And it's kind of remarkable that the first two women who came are, A, political allies and, and friends, but also representatives of these distinct traditions. And for Rashida Tlaib, she comes out of the Detroit area, which many listeners will know, uh, has a very large Muslim and very large Arab American community. Uh, The Arab American community in the Detroit area is both Muslim and Christian, and long history of activism. But in the case of Rashida Tlaib, her activism is, is... far beyond just, you know, a religious or an ethnic experience, she comes out of the Detroit area, which is uh, deeply political from a union standpoint, deeply political from a racial justice standpoint. And she's tapped into all of that. And one of the sad parts about how so much of our media covers politics is that she hasn't had that many chances to really talk about all of the issues 
that she's engaged with and excited about. And so we did discuss a lot of that, including her background in civil rights and civil liberties, which are really areas of deep passion for her. And so it was just a, it was it was a quite remarkable conversation. I know she's a member of DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, and an ally of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's also a member. They are the two socialists in the House. There's one socialist in the Senate. Remind me what his name is again. I think he's. I think it's Sanders, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and all of them, including Rashida Tlaib, support Medicare for all. She favors abolishing ICE. She's criticized both Saudi Arabia and Israel. And what did Rashida Tlaib do on her first day in office in Washington? Well, she did propose the impeachment of the president of the United States. And we talk about that quite a bit in our conversation, but it's important to understand. Again, this roots back to Rashida Tlaib as a a lawyer, an activist, a, a person with, with a deep involvement with constitutional issues that goes back a long way. So she didn't propose impeachment casually. She didn't you know, just show up and say, oh, yeah, I don't like Donald Trump. It was quite the opposite, uh, although she was, had a lot of bravado and, and people noted that. But the reality is that when you talk to her about presidential accountability, uh, she has a, a strong understanding of this. And her concern goes far beyond Donald Trump. Her concern is with an imperial presidency, with a presidency that does not defer to or respect uh, the Congress, or frankly, in many cases, the will of the people. Well, we want to listen to a couple of clips of you talking with her. Set the scene for us here. Where did you tape your interview with her for the Next Left podcast? We did it in her office, and we did it in an afternoon, a sunny Washington afternoon, in the week that she was being attacked by Republican members of Congress, including uh, Congressman Cheney from Wyoming, uh, as well as the President of the United States, who were, in this case, radically mischaracterizing comments that she made in an interview uh, in which she had decried anti-Jewish sentiments and, and in which she had spoken about the post-World War II era and the arrival of Jews in a safe haven in Israel. She spoke about it in in very clear terms, and yet uh, she was targeted for pretty intense attacks. And one of the things that we try to do with Next Left, we'll talk about the news of of the moment, but also to avoid the kind of over-focus on the moment, the over, the of the momentism, as we refer to it, and to, to make sure that we get the full picture. And I must say, too, that just in drawing this picture, she's an incredibly outgoing, enthusiastic, upbeat person who's very welcoming. And it frankly makes conversing with her uh, a delight. Well, let's listen to a little bit of Talib talking with John Nichols here about growing up in Detroit. I mean, if you look at any movement, the ones that really transformed our nation started in Detroit. And it's not just the labor rights movement, but every corner is a reminder of the civil rights movement. Uh, I mean, I grew up learning about Grace Lee Boggs and 
uh, Mary Mahaffey, and I mean, all of these incredible women who uh, really led huge fights uh, against not only poverty and justices in that way, but also even on world politics and on just the basic right to, to human rights. And even to this day, I always tell people, you know, it wasn't just my mom. If you grew up in Detroit, you have mothers everywhere. Uh, every corner, like there's a mother that is raising you, is uh, teaching you to be unapologetic and strong. Uh, I mean, I remember black mothers in Detroit telling my mother, no, 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 you don't let anybody talk to you like that. You speak up. Like even teaching my mother, who's a new immigrant, to always be strong and be powerful and never to be silent. She mentioned Grace Lee Boggs. That really surprised me. Grace Lee Boggs was a Chinese-American Marxist who worked in black radical politics in Detroit starting in the 50s, continuing right down to her death a couple of years ago. It's fascinating that, that Rashida Tlaib talks about her now. Well, I've been to Detroit a lot over the years, and I can tell you that Grace Lee Boggs is someone who really touched so many communities uh, with her activism as regards environmental issues, sustainability, uh, and economics. And so I, in that case, Rashida Tlaib is not uncommon. But it's also something else that as a young woman, Rashida Tlaib got involved with the uh, Maurice Sugar Law Center, which is a, a legal project in Detroit with a lot of historic ties to all sorts of activism uh, in labor, civil rights, civil liberties. And so she was very much a part of the, the broad activist community in Detroit. She's into her community. She's into Detroit and Wayne County uh, and likes, likes talking about the people who made their mark. Well, of course, one of the best things about the Next Left podcast is the ways that it goes beyond what you just called of the momentism to look at big picture and historical issues. But you also asked Rashida Tlaib about the campaign by Republicans, especially Trump, to pigeonhole her as some kind of, I don't know, anti-American. Let's listen to her response describing Congress today. This is an institution that is very much broken right now and very much uh, in need of an injection of, you know, looking at real human impact of doing nothing. The fact that there's a sense of urgency for me and many of us, this beautiful rainbow of women that are coming in, we're looking at each other. Many of us are moms. We like fixing things. We want to do something now. And people here are like, that. well, that's just not how it is. Sometimes I feel like I'm like a six-year-old. You know, the six-year-old always asks, why, why, why? That's how I feel. I'm like, well, why? Why can't we move this? Why can't we move this? Isn't that a great thing to say about Congress today? I know. And, and I'll tell you, you, in picking the clips, and I didn't know which ones you'd pick, that, that's a really important one. Because when you talk with Rashida Tlaib, or frankly, many of the new members who've come in, one of their deepest frustrations is the dislocation of Congress, if you will. The fact that it's so wrapped up in finger pointing and accusations and, and a, uh, just an inability of, of folks to work together. And I can tell you that, that for Rashida Tlaib, her default position is one of deep concern for her district. And she represents a very diverse district with uh, people from all sorts of backgrounds. And frankly, with many people who have some real economic and, and social challenges. And she wants Congress 
to be focused on that. And, and there's simply no question. I, I think she would be very delighted to work with people from across the political spectrum. I think you do hear in that conversation a bit of frustration with, uh, with what Congress is at this point. And then I loved especially your last question. Detroit, of course, is the Motor City, the historic home, not just of Motown records, but of generations of great black musicians. Here's John Nichols talking pop music with Rashida Tlaib. I know politics well enough to know that I would not dare ask you who the best Detroit artist is, but what's rocking you? What are you listening to? Oh, I don't know. I, I, there's been a number of artists. I mean, it's funny. I am not one of those people even remember like who's singing it, but it like resonates with me, but you know, I am old school and I grew up in the eighties. And if you ever talk to my two boys, you know, my son one time asked me, what's that? I said, that's Prince. And, uh, he's like, who's that? I was like, yeah, mommy grew up with listening to Prince. But I, I remember growing up with those artists, um, you know, Lionel Richie and, you know, these incredible artists in the 80s. That's the thing about some of us from the from Motown is we kind of attach to these artists that we can grow up and you just can't let go of them. Mommy grew up listening to Prince. Rashida Tlaib, the Muslim Palestinian American woman elected to represent Detroit in the House. She spoke with John Nichols for the Next Left podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. You can find the full interview at thenation.com, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John, thank you. It's been great having you on the show. Pleasure to be with you, brother. Start Making Sense is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography and creative writing to design, productivity, and more. For example, the course Creative Nonfiction, Write Truth with Style is taught by Susan Orlean, the best-selling author and longtime New Yorker staff writer. So whether you're returning to a longtime project challenging yourself to get outside of your comfort zone, or simply exploring something new, Skillshare has classes for you. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Start Making Sense listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com forward slash Sense. Again, go to Skillshare.com forward slash S-E-N-S-E to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com forward slash Sense. New abortion bans are springing up in Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio, and elsewhere. And Katha Pollitt says... That makes this a good time to talk about men and abortion. Katha, of course, is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. We reached her today in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, if we look at opinion polls, do we find a difference between men and women in their support for abortion rights? Well, the interesting thing is not so much. It always depends on how you ask the question, but not only in the United States, but in many other countries, both men and women have similar views. There's 
similar pro-choice views. And, you know, that's really good. Um, it's really good that men support women's right to control their fertility. But where you see a difference, I think, is in the intensity of those convictions, which is not something a poll can easily measure. What exactly is uh, in intensity? How do, you, uh, how do you evaluate intensity? Well, let's see. It, uh, the way I evaluate intensity is, do I see men at a reproductive rights conference? Do I see them at a meeting? Do, do they, I see them at a fundraiser? Do they volunteer on the pro-choice side? And I have to say, I don't see that. The only time where I see men is when they're gathering specifically of abortion providers. Many of those are men, and, you know, great, that's wonderful. That's really important. But it, it has to be like a really big march before the pro-choice men come out in big numbers. I count these things. You count. <laughs> I do. I'm always keeping track. Counting is good. We need counting. So that's the pro-abortion men when you look around, there aren't very many of them to be counted. What about anti-abortion men? Oh, they seem you know, men are all over the place there. I, you know, I, I go to the March for Life in Washington every year. It's men, men, men. Um, and when you look at who who pickets abortion clinics, who harasses patients on their way in, it's very heavily men. When they brought that lawsuit, you know, against against allowing people to get really close to patients on their way in, they, it was, the, you know, the sweet grandmother who just wants to hand you a pamphlet. That's not what it's really all about. Okay. Um, but anyway, yeah, the, the pro-choice, pro-choice men are rare on the ground and pro-life men, quote-unquote, pro-life, are uh, everywhere. And why do you think men are so much more active in the anti-abortion movement? Can you explain the intensity there? Well, I think they identify with the fetus. They, you know, they're not a woman, but they could be a fetus. Uh, they were a fetus. Um, and so I think that's part of it. And I think that um, there is a, an aspect to the anti-abortion movement that is about restoring traditional gender roles with men on top and women as, you know, the fertile wives and mothers. And they like that. They want that back. So I think that that is a lot of what it's all about. And what's interesting is that after I wrote this column saying, come on, men, step up to the plate, uh, a lot of men wrote in and they said, well, this doesn't really concern me, and you women never like it when men interfere, any, get involved anyway. You're always telling us we're doing it wrong. <laughs> so I'm just going to stay out of this. And I'm thinking, oh, how did those women get pregnant? Tell me. <laughs> But there is a, a a question that this raises here. Isn't abortion rights a women's issue? Isn't the heart of it the rights of women to control yeah. their own bodies? Absolutely. But why does that mean that men can't help? I mean, what if white people said, well, you know, civil rights, that's really a black problem. I don't want to get involved in that. I'm always doing it wrong. We wouldn't put up with that. What about immigrants? If you're not an immigrant, you're never going to be an immigrant. So why should you get involved in their issues? Because it's the right thing to do. And uh, not only is it politically the right thing to do in, in your analysis, you also think men have a big personal stake in this particular right of women. Yes, they do. And this is something I think men need to think about a little more, which is 
Men also have their lives stunted by unwanted childbearing. When a pregnancy pushes them into marriage, they too suffer. They can get married to the wrong person. They have to drop out of school and go work at a gas station or whatever and give up ambitions and dreams. A lot of the things that women see very clearly as the reason why they need abortion rights is true for men also. And and sometimes I think, you know, I think, John, of all these people, you know, how, how guilty and terrible you must feel for not doing right by children you didn't mean to have, have no real connection to, maybe you've never even met them. These are things women think about a lot, and they things that men should think about too. So we've been talking sort of abstractly here about rights and intensity. Let's get specific. You think men should do more to support women's right to abortion. What should they, or maybe I should say we, be doing? Well, I think that um, men should use condoms more than they do now and not have that be a responsibility on the woman to bring it up and have the condoms there and all like that. I remember, I remember reading, you know, articles in women's magazines about how you should always be prepared with condoms. And I'm thinking, I should always be prepared with condoms? What, what about him? Then, then there's another thing, which is, where is the men's mass movement demanding a male birth control pill? That birth control pill has been on the horizon, um, it, and it never really happens. But women fought for birth control. I don't see men fighting for male birth control, which would be a very helpful thing to have. Specifically, they need to volunteer as clinic defenders and patient escorts, political campaign workers and fundraisers. They need to give money to pro-choice candidates. They need to march and demonstrate, uh, talk to men about abortion, get active together. They need to donate to abortion funds, especially in in the abortion ban states that are getting ever more numerous. That's a good list. Our show is based in Los Angeles. You're you're in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where we live. Clinic defense isn't a, a problem, you know. Where we live, you know, all of our local candidates, it's just assumed they're all yeah they're all in yeah. favor of of women's rights. So we're, what we're talking here about is places where we don't, where you and I do uh, not live. I'm not so sure that's true. For example, I did um, clinic uh, patient escorting at Choices, which is an abortion clinic in Queens. And they have, you know, this parade of priests and nuns and extremely religious rosary-saying people who, and, and also evangelicals. They've had to sort of divide the time up because the, Christi- the Catholics and the evangelicals don't get along so well. <laughs> but, you know, what I was doing, what, I don't want to give myself too much credit. I only did it once. But, you know, you just go to the subway station, you find the patients, and you bring them over. A man can do that. But just because we're in these incredibly blue liberal spaces doesn't mean that there aren't anti-choice people who are very active there. One other question. Uh, We're talking specifically about what men can, should be doing to support women's right to abortion. Just to get personal here for a minute, what about paying for an abortion? Equality of women, doesn't that mean you pay 50-50? Well, you know, that always peeves me. You should pay the whole bill, Mr. Man. Um, half is fake equality. This woman is going through a not best day of her life with sanitary napkins and follow-up visits and all kinds of stuff like that. That's her share. Having the abortion is her share. And men have more money than women, and they should spend it helping their girlfriend out. <laughs> 
You said since your column uh, appeared, you've gotten responses from men, and one of the responses has been, well, whenever I do anything, the women say I'm doing it wrong, so I guess I shouldn't have anything to do with this. What other responses have you gotten? Well, I end I ended my column with a little joke about uh, where I, I said I know men like sports. Let's go there. You already said said that it's time for men to step up to the plate. I I right. think let's okay. let's look at some other sports meta, me, metaphors because that is the way to speak okay, to so men. If you don't strike out, guys. Yeah, right. If so you get if you, if you get past first base, what then? So somebody wrote in to the nation, what kind of sexist crap is this? Because you're talking about men, you have to put it in terms of sports metaphors, because men are cavemen, and those is the only terms they can understand. Would it be okay for me to say, I know women like ballet and cooking, so let's all bake a cake together and pirouette to happiness. (laughs) The thing about the nation commenters, there are these sort of frogs, these toads, they sit on the nation comment threads all day long. I don't know, they have nothing else to do. And... So they're and insulted. They have no sense of humor, none at all. They're insulted by the fact that you think that sports metaphors is a way to communicate with men. So I guess you struck out with these guys. I guess I uh, <laughs> I, I, I knocked one out of the park. No, 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 you didn't. The opposite. <laughs> yeah, the opposite. Yeah, but you failed to knock it out of the park uh, with them. Katha, any final thoughts here on our messages to men? I think we're in a terrible, terrible situation with regard to reproductive rights. I mean, Trump has really uh, just gone all out uh, to take them away and handed this all over to religious fanatics. It's very disturbing. And it's really time for us all to work together to make sure that we still have some left by the time we say goodbye to that dreadful man. Katha Pollitt, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. I think you really scored with this piece. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. It's nice to be on your show. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.